Thanks again for tuning into Revolutionary Lumpen Radio, where we continue our hashtag Theory Thursday series with capitalist realism. We're going through chapters five and six. Chapters five is October 6th, 1979. Don't let yourself get attached to anything. Chapter six being all that is solid melting to PR, market Stalinism and bureaucratic production. These two chapters marked Fisher talks more about bureaucracy, goes into you know Fordism, post-Fordism, and we've actually got a lot to say about this. So hopefully by the end of this episode we all go away with a good understanding of what bureaucracy is at least. And as always, a big thank you to our Patreon subscribers. Gives us a lot of support. It encourages to do more of these theories, more episodes at a higher quality. So please give us a subscribe on whatever app you're listening to all your podcasts on. And you can also subscribe on Patreon too. You don't have to become a Patreon member. You don't have to give us any kind of money, anything like that. But you can subscribe on Patreon and then get notified when we release all our Theory Thursday episodes. Because not every single Theory Thursday episode is going to be on our main feeds, which you'd find on like iTunes podcast and whatnot. Because we kind of want like seven or eight interviews and like two theory episodes featured within each series on the main feed. It's not that some people are just too dumb to understand it. I mean, that's complete nonsense, right? It can be taught to anyone. Uh, it is intuitive to some degree, and it's not like an intelligence thing. And, you know, we had some placards, one of them, which said the pre-factual point that Zionism is racism. You know, it's not just a moral stand, it's a political stand. What you're talking about is the role that Israel plays securing the interests of US and British imperialism in the Middle East. And it would be talking about Iraq or Afghanistan or something today where I am and I like understand these conflicts that have literally been going on since I was born it's just like horrifying it's not it's not British culture it's just the world's culture they love stories they love this idea that there is this nation that looks like this I think it's a distraction from the class struggle to be honest all right guys we're gonna hop into chapter five and chapter six chapter six is incredibly dense in terms of length length and dense chapter five is shorter but still pretty dense. Let's just go and hop into it. Chapter 5 here is oct- called October 6th, 1979. Don't let yourself get attached to anything. So I'm just going to start reading here and then we'll comment as we go. A guy told me one time, says organized crime boss Neil McCauley in Michael Mann's 1995 film Heat. Don't let yourself get attached to anything you are not willing to walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you feel the heat around the corner. One of the easiest ways to grasp the differences between Fordism and post-Fordism is to compare Mann's film with the gangster movies made by Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese between 1971 and 1990. In Heat, the scores are undertaken not by families with links to the old country, but by rootless crews in an LA of polished chrome and interchangeable designer kitchens, of featureless freeways and late-night diners. All the local colour, the cuisine aromas, the colourful idiolects, which the likes of The Godfather and Goodfellas depended upon, have been painted over and refitted. East Los Angeles is a world without trademarks, without landmarks. 
a branded sprawl where markable territory has been replaced by endlessly repeating vistas of replicating franchises. The ghosts of old Europe that stalked Scorsese and Coppola's streets have been exercised, buried with the ancient beefs, bad blood and burning vendettas somewhere beneath the multinational coffee shops. You can learn a great deal about the world of heat from considering the name Neil Macaulay. It's an anonymous name, a fake passport name, a name that is bereft of history. This is the journey. We are all traveling backwards, so we don't have to deal with the reality. We are doomed. Even as, ironically, it echoes the name of the British historian Lord Macaulay. Compare Corleone, and remember that the Godfather was named after a village. Macaulay is, perhaps, the part that De Niro plays that is closest to the actor's own personality. A screen, a cipher, depthless, icily professional, stripped down to pure preparation, research, and method. I do what I do best. Fisher loves talking about films, doesn't he? But you can appreciate why that is, because obviously so much of our cultural understanding comes from films. People, for example, over here don't know what people in, like, they, well, they would know what these kind of people in New York would be like if it were not for films and, you know, Californication from the Red Hot Chili Peppers really speaks upon this cultural dominance over ideology and subcultures within the United States or even this Californication also helps some way like push up these stereotypes in a way. Yeah, I mean, people often think of films like this as being representative of culture, but they also set culture, right? They're not just representative of a culture that's already there, they're actively feeding a culture to people. Which is why yeah. people are able to make ideological analyses of these films, because if you compare Heat, which is post-Bordism here, and you compare them to films of sort of real roots, history, cuisines, dialects, uh, names that go back to the old country, the Godfather and the Goodfellas, right? You can see that that's Fordism. And the fact that films and the film landscape has changed from making films like The Goodfather, The Godfather and The Goodfellas over to things like Heat shows there is that difference now in how films are made and that is reflective of culture and society. Mm, yeah, that was exactly the point that I wanted to get out of there. Nice one. Nice. Let's hop back into this then, and I'll read the next section. As the organization of work is decentralized, as with post-Fordism, with lateral networks replacing pyramidal, hi pyramidal? pyramidal hierarchies, a premium is put on flexibility, echoing Macaulay's mockery of Hannah in Heat, how do you expect to keep a marriage? Senate emphasizes the intolerable stresses that these conditions of permanent instability put on family life. The values that family life depend on, obligation, trustworthiness, commitment, are precisely those which are held to be obsolete in new capitalism, post-Bordism. Yet, with the public sphere under attack and the safety nets that a quote-unquote nanny state used to provide being dismantled, the family becomes an increasingly important place of respite from the pressures of a world in which instability is a constant. The situation of the family in post-Fordist capitalism is contradictory, in precisely the way that traditional Marxism expected. Capitalism requires the family, as an essential means of reproducing and caring for labor power, as a self for the psychic wounds inflicted by an anarchistic social-economic conditions, even as it undermines those very conditions. 
denying parents time with children, putting intolerable stresses on couples as they become the exclusive source of effective consolation for each other. According to Marxist economist Christian Marazzi, the switch from Fordism to post-Fordism can actually be given a very specific date, October 6th, 1979. It was on that date that the Federal Reserve increased interest rates by 20 points, preparing the way for the supply-side economics that would constitute the economic reality in which we are now enmeshed. The rise in interest rates not only contained inflation, it made possible a new organization of the means of production and distribution. The rigidity of the Fordist production line gave way to a new flexibility, a word that will send chills of recognition down the spines of every worker today. The cosmic egg is cracking. This flexibility was defined by a deregulation of capital with labor with the workforce being casualized as an increasing number of workers are employed on a temporary basis and outsourced. So what what that's saying there is Fordism was everything before October the 6th, 1979 to an extent. And then after that, what you've got is new supply side economics, which Mark quotes will constitute a new economic reality. And then referring to the chills down the spine when it comes down to a new flexibility in workers. And I would really want to emphasize this deregulation of capital and labor with the workforce being casualized. What does that mean in real terms? That's zero hour contracts, that's temporary contracts, that's extended periods of three, four, six months where you're under work review, you haven't been hired, you can get fired at any point. So that's really what he's referring to there, isn't he? Just the precaution, just (laughs) the precarious position in which you're in as a worker and you don't have job security that's summarizing what what he's saying there isn't it um yeah basically yeah he's just talking about you know pre and post that date was the distinction between fordism and post fordism you know how you go from this sort of strict regimented sort of assembly line work mode you know it's called ford because of henry ford obviously he um introduced the assembly line way of working, the sort of regimented assembly line way of working. So that's where Fordism came from, that type of way of working. And then sort of post um, October 6th, 79, um, that sort of breaks down. You get a, a more decentralized, more fluid way of production where people don't really have fixed jobs. People don't really And they're still there, of course. I mean, of course, people still have the salary jobs that they've been at for 40 years, but more so with our generation than ever, that is... It's a dystopian vision of hell. In other words, it is a utopian vision of heaven. It's all in the double negatives. Much less and less popular or or likely to to happen. It's basically just characterizing the differences between, you know, Fordism and post-Fordism. Just to look at the contradictions there, that would be extremely crap if you're working class, but if you're a capitalist, that's excellent because you get to... You're on a journey. Where are you going? Why are you going there? Have you a clue or are you just doing what you are told? Do you have a purpose? Just hire and fire at your leisure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's later in either this chapter or the next one. He starts talking about how this provides obvious challenges. 
for unions, right? Because yeah, not only are unions, you know, ever under attack and ever being diminished, but now your workforce can be are essentially temporary. So what does that yeah. mean for a union where, you know, you're hiring this, he's fired, now he, another one's in, now he's gone, right? Like, the idea of a permanent opposition to capital in the workforce is uh, not really the case. Yeah, because, like, in Asda, they don't have permanent contracts anymore, no bullshit, they've only got that temporary contract. But the managers will tell you, oh, don't worry, you're not going anywhere. You know, you're staying, we'll just extend your contract when it comes to that period. But it's like, there's no... There's no guarantee there whatsoever. You're on a temporary contract and could be in the year where the sales aren't doing too great and they're just like, you know, get rid of him. He's one of the new ones. Maybe have him back if he applies over Christmas. And then what's my union supposed to do or what's anybody else's union supposed to do? I mean, that's just legal that I was on a temporary contract. The contract's expired because it was only for like a few months. I mean, you're fucked, aren't you? So, great point there, unions, hands are tied. Yeah, and we'll come to that later. So I'll hop back in the text here. Like Senate, Marazzi recognises that the new conditions both required and emerged from an increased cybernetization of the working environment. The Fordist factory was crudely divided into blue and white collar work, with the different types of labour physically delimited by the structure of the building itself. Laboring in noisy environments, watched over by don't let yourself get attached managers and supervisors. Workers had access to language only in their breaks, in the bathroom, at the end of the working day, or when they were engaged in sabotage, because communication interrupted production. But in post-Fordism, where the assembly line becomes a flux of information, people work by communicating. As Norbert Wiener taught, communication and control entail one another. Right, so you can't have control without communication, or communication without control. These are not, you know, antithetical to each other, they are, you know, hand in glove. He talks about communication interrupting production there and I just want to underline the fact that it's something that every single worker in the world has experienced. If you're talking in your job you just ask a colleague anything and then you've got like a manager who looks over you both kind of look at each other and you've just kind of like like got to look away otherwise the manager's like oh these are standing around talking we need to give these loads of more work and even as colleagues you can be talking about work you can be talking about when's this delivery gonna be in or they need help over there if a manager's at a distance observing you talk about this even if it's to do with work you still feel like you're in the wrong so you still feel like your job, your livelihood, you know, your bread and butter is threatened. So, you know, Mark Fisher mentions communication and I just really want to emphasize what that means in real terms for workers. Yeah, most certainly. Mark Fisher actually talks about that right here. He goes on to say, work and life become inseparable. Capital follows you when you dream. Time ceases to be linear, it becomes chaotic and broken down into punctiform divisions. As production and distribution are restructured, so are nervous systems. To function effectively as a component of just-in-time production, you must develop a capacity to respond to unforeseen events. You must learn to live in conditions of total instability or precarity, as neologism... neologism... There's a few tough words in here, isn't it? I, the, the annoying thing is, I know how to say that. 
but for some reason I don't. Neologism. 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 Oh man, I'm not the best. Uh, as the ugly has You pronounce it however you want and then our listeners can just copy you like, and then you can start a new trend. I feel like that has one too many... Neologism. Neologism. It's neologism. It definitely is. I don't know why my brain just like... We'll set the new standard now. It's definitely neologism. My brain just like... It, it's neologism. It is, but so I don't know. We can pronounce it, but I don't know what it means. Oh, it means it's like um, a neologism is like it's like a saying, but not a saying. It's like a, a coined word or a, an, an expression. Like when a new word enters the language, it becomes like a, a neologism. It's like, and he's saying here about you know precarity. That's the ugly neologism that's new to people. You know, they talk about being on a state of constant precarity. Periods of work alternate with periods of unemployment. Typically, you find yourself employed in a series of short-term jobs, unable to plan for the future. Yeah, so that's essentially what this is, right? That's the difference between Fordism and post-Fordism. I hope people have a, a good understanding of that right now. It's called the gig economy now, essentially. That's what people will refer to you as, but that is yeah. what he's describing. Yeah, most definitely understand where the difference between Fordism, post-Fordism, post-Fordism being which you can call the, the gig economy because this is when these newer contracts come about and become legal to make workers lives precarious there's there's permanent contracts, there's temporary contracts, there's zero hour contracts and people are most definitely filled with periods of unemployment that's just how the economy works there has to be unemployed people in our society so that when it comes to Christmas time or they open up a new McDonald's where there hasn't been a McDonald's that there's unemployed proles out there to get hired and the same reason why there has to be homeless people there has to be people on benefits on the dole it's so that there's a constant supply of workforce to be taken up whenever a company goes under or when it's picked up but before we move on I really want to go back to this communication for workers we are living in a time beyond ideas. A time in which the only idea you understand is the idea that you know nothing whatsoever. Isn't that comforting? Workers having access to language only on the breaks and the toilets at the end of the working day or when they're engaged in sabotage. Now, yeah, that's most definitely true in during work hours, but ever more increasingly, whilst you're restricted to communicating and producing language from your mouth with sound waves in the workplace. <laughs> I mean, the workplace really wants to see everything you're saying, hear everything you're saying outside of the workplace. Your job doesn't depend on whether you're friends on Facebook with everybody in the workplace. Do you ever wonder who decided the rules of the game? However, if you, for example, get a lot of friends requests from people in your workplace and you refuse them, again, you're new to the company, you're only on a temporary contract, are you really going to decline everybody? Are you going to decline your supervisors? Are you going to decline people who you consider friends within the workplace? Or are you going to press confirm and then suddenly give away you know, years, maybe decades of your history and your past and your thoughts and your feelings of your Facebook timeline? Are you going to give work your mobile number so that they can call you whenever you want? 
whilst also follow you on WhatsApp or Instagram. So whilst everything about you, your personality, yourself and your thoughts and your feelings are absolutely restricted in the workplace, the workplace ever increasingly wants to follow you at home and even get you engaged in talking with other colleagues outside of the workplace to build you know, a stronger work unit or something. This is something I've observed myself. It's something I've heard other comrades speak about. It's definitely a reality and it's something that we really have to be aware of and absolutely just condemn as perverse, creepy, nightmarish, hellish shit where Fisher says, you know, capital follows us into our dreams. It most certainly does, but, you know, it also follows us about all the time at home, around our family and our actual lives. The journey will end one day. Will you reach the station or jump off the train? Yeah, I just don't have Facebook, so I don't even have that issue. People ask me, like, do you have Facebook? I'm like, no. So I don't ever have that issue when, like, getting a new job. It's just like, yeah, no, I don't do that. Yeah, that's exactly I, I never, until FRFI only started posting on Facebook for, like, all their events and protests and all their Zoom meetings and also I had to be on Facebook to have an Instagram profile where I can, like, promote the podcast so i mean i'm really on it for like to follow frfi liverpool and also just to like promote the podcast that's the only reason but obviously it's disgusting and i'm seeing friend requests from people in work and i'm just like obviously i just want to like like they're just kind of sitting there in my friends request and i'm probably never going to touch them i'm probably going to get fired lately anyway but you know and i was just saying you can also just have an account that's not under your name and then just tell people you don't have one I can't. Why? Like, uh, no bullshit, man. You've got to have your proper full name on Facebook or don't approve your account. I would not know, like, seeing as I do not have one. I'm not shitting you. If you done it, if you, like, made But how do they know? Just make up a fake name. Just call yourself Jim Bob. Like, what because, do Because they message you to, to take a picture of your ID. What? Like, I'm, I'm, like it sounds like I'm, I'm chatting shit, but I'm not chatting shit because obviously I don't want my name and all that all over Facebook and that. But I've tried to change your name, and then I got locked out of of that account. Or like I made an account like John Lennon. Facebook was like, yeah, that doesn't seem right. I'm gonna have to take a like you're gonna have to upload like a picture of your identification. No bullshit. Facebook's proper onto it, you know. People probably get away with it somehow if you made an account years ago with a fake name. But if you made one today, I think like you definitely have to prove your name and that. Like I'm, I'm not bullshitting you. That's how it is. That's a good job. I'm never gonna have an account then, so I don't even have to deal with that. Honestly. What does this all mean? Who knows? You're too stupid to understand. This is the journey. Honest, it's creepy. Hi. Especially in the UK, the traditional representatives of the working class, union and labour leaders found Fordism rather too congenial. Its stability of antagonism gave them a guaranteed role, but this meant it was easy for the advocates of post-Fordism capital to present themselves as the opponents of the status quo, bravely resisting an inertial, inertia organised labour pointlessly invested in fruitless ideological antagonism which served the ends of union leaders and politicians but did little to advance the hopes of the work of the class they purportedly represented. Yeah, so this is basically just talking about, you know, post-Fordism, the strategy of post-Fordism to be able to uproot dynamics 
or tradition set in Fordism by branding itself as, you know, opponents of the status quo and we're the new and we're bravely resisting the old way and we're the new way, essentially. That's just how it uproots Fordism. Like Trump recently on these RNC things where he kind of promotes himself as a revolutionary in some ways. Like, people genuinely think, like, the Trump campaign is a kind of revolutionary sense because he's completely flipping the script on the whole political culture. And in some ways, no, it's not even remotely true, it's just... It was only ever in name only. When you're campaigning for the first time, you can get away with that because no one knows what you're going to do. But the second that you've been there for four years and everyone's seen what you've done, you can't come out and run for re-election as the hope and change guy when people have seen that you've just done nothing but give everything to the establishment for the past four years. You can't run on that anymore. As someone with a pension fund is also interested in maximizing the yield from his or her investments, there is no longer an identifiable external enemy. The consequence is, Marazzi argues, that post-Fordism workers are like Old Testament Jews after they left the house of slavery. They were liberated from a bondage to which they have no wish to return, but are also abandoned and stranded in the desert, confused about the way forward. Yeah, so again this thing here with the pension fund is they're essentially saying that union members, strong union members and union leaders, as a result of those union benefits, found themselves with benefits like a pension, and apparently for some reason this meant that they no longer had an identifiable external enemy, which I don't really understand, like just because you have a pension doesn't mean that class antagonism doesn't exist or anything, but I completely understand his point about post-Fordist workers. Because the second someone like that comes along and says, we're going to liberate you from the bondage of Fordism, and then you say, okay, let's do it. And then you quickly find yourself stranded in the desert, right? There's you out of the frying pan into the fire, right? Like capitalists to peasants of feudalism. I mean, kind of, but these people never were capitalists, right? They were essentially just unionized proletariat unions anyway. It's more than that, it's like a whole ideological... Oh shit, yeah, it's post-Fordist workers, yeah. Yeah. Music that makes you realize the one eternal truth. I'm fucked. This is the journey. Because they've gone from being Fordist workers to post-Fordist workers, so the whole landscape of the workforce has entirely changed. Yeah, so they're liberated from Fordism. Mm-hmm because they've got no wish to return to that, mm -hmm. but also they're now stranded in this post-forwardism, confused on the way forward. Yep. Yeah, it is like out of the frying pan into the fire, fucking hell. Sure. It sucks. I mean, there's obviously parallels there also between the Trump thing, right? Like the people who followed him, that's also out of the frying pan into the fire. The idea that he came along and said, you know, the status quo is wrong, follow me. Do you ever wonder who created your character? And why your life is a computer simulation. But he just implemented a, a more brutal version of the status quo, right? Yeah, damn, these workers who have struggled and fought with the unions and have been led on this lie, where just, we need to get past forwarders and we're into the future, and then they've got this victory, and then they've got this two steps forward, one step fucking back. Mm-hmm. The psychological conflicts raging within individuals cannot but have casualties. Marazzi is researching the link between the increase in bipolar disorder and post-Fordism, and if, as Deleuze and Gutierrez argue, schizophrenia is the condition that marks the outer edges of capitalism, 
then bipolar disorder is the mental illness proper to the interior of capitalism. With its ceaseless boom and bust cycles, capitalism is itself fundamentally and irreducibly bipolar. Periodically lurching between hyped-up mania, the irrational exuberance of bubble thinking, and the depressive downcome of the crashes. The term economic depression is, of course, no accident. To a degree, unprecedented in any other social system, capitalism both feeds on and reproduces the moods of populations. Without delirium and confidence, capital could not function. I mean, that's undoubtedly true, right? It's the idea that capital literally functions on all the emotions of people, right? No matter what emotion you're feeling, you there's a product for it, right? So they can either sell you makeup or they'll sell you whatever it is you want or whatever they've told you you need, right? They can sell it to you no matter what. Yeah, because Mark Fisher thankfully tells us that in the actual words as capitalism both feeds and reproduces the moods of populations so it doesn't just function within the moods of populations it both feeds off it and creates it in the sense that you know look at black lives matter it produced the conditions for black lives matter to arise and it's now feeding off it whether it's politicians using it to propel themselves forward in the, the mass consciousness of people or whether it's Netflix who are going to make loads of shows about it and then they're going to get viewers. It's the system itself that's producing inequality, brutal <sighs> murders within their own population and then obviously they profit from it. Look at the Fred Hampton film that's going to come out. It produced the Black Panthers and it profits from the Black Panthers. For sure, that's essentially, I mean, that's definitely how capital functions. It feeds you emotions and then it profits from those emotions. And then, because it's... In your very own mind, everything can be bent to your will. Even the stars only exist for you. The universe floats just outside your reach. No wonder you need to go back into therapy. This is the journey created the source from profit it wants people to like fred hampton now it wants people to like the black panther party because the more people who like it the more people are gonna go and pay to see this movie and it's into passivity again if we refer to you know what was it chapter one chapter two yeah yeah for sure it's also the idea i mean i'd be interested to see the film as well because there was also that little thing about you know capital stripping the revolutionary potential out of everything so we'll see how that goes I think that's only going to be out in the cinemas. I'm sure it says only in cinemas, so that might actually not be on Netflix. That like literally might just be on the cinema. Whether it's on Netflix or not, you best believe I'm going to have a copy. Yeah, don't even worry about that. I'm seeing it and I'm not paying for it. For sure. It seems that with post-Fordism, the invisible plague of psychiatry and effective disorders that have spread silently and stealthily around 1750, i.e. the very onset of industrial capitalism, has reached a new level of acuteness. Here, Oliver James's work is important. In a book titled The Selfish Capitalist, James points to significant rises in the rates of mental distress over the last 25 years. By most criteria, James reports, rates of distress almost doubled between people born between 1946, aged 36 in 1982, and 1970, who will be aged 30 in 2000. For example, 16% of 36-year-old women in 1982 reported having trouble with nerves, feeling low, or depressed, whereas 79% 
of 39 year olds reported in this in the year 2000. For men it was 8% in 82 and 13% in the year 2000. Yeah, so this is just talking about, you know, the internalizing of the external disaster of capital, essentially, but with statistics. Damn. Indeed. There's actually been a ton of work on this. I mean, he spoke about it, like Deleuze and Gutierrez and things. There have been tons of people that have wrote about, or basically exclusively this. And also, you know, Oliver James that he's literally talking about right now. What a brilliant mind. He analyzes things so accurately and so poetically, and he also provides statistics you really can't ask for much more for sure he continues to say that the current ruling ontology denies any possibility of a social causation of mental illness the chemical biologization biologization of mental illness is of course strictly commensurate with its depoliticization considering mental illness and individual chemical biological problem has of course a normal benefits for capitalism First, it reinforces capital's drive towards atomistic individualization, you are sick because of and only because of brain chemistry. Second, it provides an enormously lucrative market in which multinational pharmaceutical companies can peddle their pharmaceuticals. It goes without saying that all mental illnesses are neurologically instigated, but this says nothing about their causation. If it is true, for instance, that depression is constituted by low serotonin levels, what needs to be addressed is why particular individuals have low levels of serotonin. This requires a social and political explanation, and the task of repoliticizing mental illness is an urgent one if the left wants to challenge capitalist realism. It's time to travel to the epicenter of the void. The journey. Yeah, so I think we um, spoke about this last episode, right? Yeah. About how this works, and of course they want it to be individual, so that they can atomize everything, so that they don't have to look at the social consequences of anything, and so that they can sell you the cure. As I said in the earlier episode as well, Mark Fisher's always talking about mental health, he's doing it now, I'm sure he's going to do it into the future, if it's something that obviously affected him, or affects I think most people today, he believes it requires a social and political explanation. The science is there, the science is, you know, like all forms of education and information is restricted from the population. Because if people all knew how serotonin was developed... Time is growing faster, increasing, you want it to slow down, blink. You missed it. And how we couldn't produce enough of it, then people would start looking towards social and political explanations just naturally. That's where it comes down to the individualization and the capitalization of it and just take these medicines and go back to work. I mean, yeah, basically. They're fired. And that yeah, there good. is the conclusion of chapter six. Don't let yourself get attached to anything. Uh, chapter 5, don't let yourself get a chance to anything. Yeah, nice one for that, Ryan. I struggled a little bit with that chapter because so much of it was just talking about people that I'd never heard of and talking about abstract dates and the concept of fordism, post-fordism, but, you know, I really do have a good understanding of that. Thanks, sir. Thanks for your notes there, and hopefully that's something that the listeners benefited with as well. So, nice one. I do have a lot of notes on chapter 6 though, talks about bureaucracy, a surprise no moments because bureaucracy is a word that I'm sure a lot of people have heard about, the 
boys who are democracy versus the dictatorship of the proletariat, the theory we done talks about bureaucracy as well as the you know the state and all these things but mm-hmm. you know it's kind of an abstract concept i've never learned what bureaucracy is but i've always read about bureaucracy you know what i mean and i think a lot of people have heard this word as well but don't have a really an in-depth explanation of it as well and i think it's one of those words where you you can look in a dictionary you can look on wikipedia but Without a kind of Marxist analysis, you're only going to get so much out of the definition. So we're going to go into it a lot, I'm sure. A lot of different phenomena which kind of rise under bureaucracy and a lot of effects from bureaucratic institutions. Most certainly. Alright then, let's go ahead and hop into chapter 6 here. This chapter is called All That Is Solid Melts Into PR. Market Stalinism and Bureaucratic Anti-Production. So, I'm guessing he's going to start off with some films or some TV shows. <laughs> well... How, 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 how. Yes, I am laughing at you. Just as luck would have it, he in fact is. He starts, Mike Judge's unjustly under-celebrated film Office Space from 1999 is as acute an account of the 90s-2000s works place as Schrader's Blue Collar 1978 was of the 70s labour relations. Instead of the confrontation between trade union officials and management in a factory, Judge's film shows a corporation... Scor... Is that even spelled correct? Scorotize... S-C-L-E-R-O-T-I-Z-E-E-D For the listeners, never seen that word in my life. Scleritized. The machine is beginning to overload the senses. The self-transforming machines are about to sing their song. Scleritized it. Scleritized. Okay, that's fine. Scleritized by administrative anti-production. Workers receive multiple memos from different managers saying the exact same thing. Naturally, the memo concerns a bureaucratic practice. It aims to induce compliance with a new procedure of putting cover sheets on reports. In keeping with the being smart ethos, the management style in office space is a mixture of short sleeves, informality, and quiet authoritarianism. Here, staff are required to decorate their uniforms with seven pieces of flair, i.e. badges and other personal tokens, to express their individuality and creativity. The flare example also points to another phenomenon. Hidden expectations behind the official standards. Joanna, a waitress at a coffee chain, wears exactly seven pieces of flare, but it is soon made clear to her that even though seven is officially enough, it's actually inadequate. The manager asks her if she wants to be the sort of person who only does the bare minimum. You know what, Stan? If you want me to wear 37 pieces of flair, Joanna complains, why don't you just make the minimum 37 pieces of flair? Well, the manager replies, I thought I remembered you saying that you wanted to express yourself. Enough is no longer enough. This syndrome will be familiar to many workers who find that a satisfactory grading in performance evaluation is in fact not satisfactory. In many educational institutions, for instance, if after a classroom observation a teacher is graded as satisfactory, 
they are required to undertake training prior to a reassessment. Fuck me. There's a couple of things. First of all, I've never seen these films that he refers to office space and blue collar. He talks about them because it probably <laughs> reflects on and produces cultural understanding of these things. But what I can totally relate to is I am very old, older than your species. The universe is laughing at you, especially when you touch yourself. Is that all you've got? These memos that get handed down to people from head office or the people on the flipping 80th floor. This receiving of memos to keep you on your toes is like a reminder of the condensation from the breath of management going down your neck who are like 70 floors above you. They're not directly managing you, but they're sending you something so as if to say, we've got your eyes on you and to kind of keep you on your toes. And also like kind of gives management on the path of the back and it's like they're not actually doing any kind of management. They're just like sending notes or sending emails from time to time. And that's really going into the start of bureaucracy where it might look like it's managing. It might look like that's going to change a worker's attitude or produce something great, but it's really, it's really not. And a lot of the time it's, it's seen as like a kind of informal way to be like authoritarian in a way. I mean, um, it's also just inefficient, right? Because instead of having one source, one authority sending one memo, instead it's decentralized. So now what you have is like 15 middle managers all thinking that they're the boss, sending out 15 memos saying the exact same thing instead of just an individual <laughs> place sending one. Yeah, and this chapter is going to explain exactly why I was really blown away with how well Mark Fisher was able to talk about bureaucracy and even educate somebody like me with with this concept. It's really great. People are going to really enjoy this and, and get a lot out of it. When it comes down to staff are required to decorate the uniforms with seven pieces of flair to express their individuality and creativity, you know, this handy illustration of the way in which creativity and self-expression have become intrinsic to labour in controlled societies. This is probably a bad example, so I'm just going to say that I'm going to digress a little bit now, in case it is a bad example. But I believe that like this is why corporations, in a sense, incorporate pink capitalism in the workplace. In my work, we recently had a wear any colour shirt to work for supporting LGBTQ rights. So this was great. I was like, okay, cool, I'll come wearing a pink shirt. Anybody ask me why you're wearing a pink shirt, I'll say because fucking LGBTQ people are being oppressed and fucking stand with all the poor oppressed people all around the world. And we all need to stand together and stop fucking insulting each other and turn against the people who are oppressing us and making people fucking upset and miserable and depressed and, and having to hide who they are within themselves, you know, that should be the actual reason and why people are wearing coloured shirts and work. But instead, what it is, it's management, it's these people who would be sending memos down to, you know, managers in, in the stores all around the country or the world or whatever. I really see this as like, they've sat in like headquarters or like, you know, head office or whatever it is, wherever they are in the boardroom and they're all like, okay, how can we make it look like we're doing more for LGBTQ rights? How can we compete with Starbucks and their fucking rainbow cups? 
and then like they've come up with this idea for the staff to wear different coloured t-shirts and that's okay that that would be okay but where it makes me sick is you could only wear the t-shirts in which the company provided and you had to buy them at a price so this is what bureaucracy is in some ways to me it's where people above store are really looking for ways to make them look good so that they can all sit around and fucking pat themselves on the back fucking fingering themselves getting all bonuses for coming up with these stupid ideas to make it look like they care about people rather than just producing the conditions where people are cared for it's definitely like a big middle finger to LGBTQ people I think and it made me sick seeing this and reading it on the wall and like thinking what we've got to buy the t-shirts from this workplace in order to support people that's like pink capitalism gone crazy rainbow capitalism just want to give another antidote as well from my work experience so like every couple of months the managers will go up to the staff room and there'll be like donuts there there'll be like woodies or there'll be like cakes and that and then it's like you know thank you from management so we all have a little scan in that that sound yeah and then like a week or two later you come in a building to like clock in go into work and then what do you see you see photos on the wall of these fucking donuts and the manager smiling with the donuts and they've got a fucking staff member there to hold up this donut and fucking grin the head off as if like they're living the fucking dream <laughs> like on next to minimum wage eating fucking donuts and work that's one thing provide the fucking donuts give us some butties and that yeah love a little scram for free but if you're gonna take pictures and then make people pose with the fucking donuts and then put it on the wall so that you can then take a picture of that wall and then you can go to headquarters and go oh look i've done that thing that you said boss and you know the workers are, are, are like the, the workers are happy see them with a forced smile on the face that's again what i come to understand is what bureaucracy is that's people again in upper management higher stores they're like how can we make it look like on social media all of our staff are happy and they don't care about the actual happiness of the staff because if they wanted the staff to be happy they'd simply raise the wages so that we could afford fucking donuts ourselves and we wouldn't have to force smiles would simply always be fucking smiling because we'd be happy because we'd be respected and we'd be on a reasonable wage and we'd have good contracts and that but instead no they create this bureaucracy in which like, a new person would come to the store the, the, the seeing like pictures of everybody smiling on the wall they'll, they're like oh this looks like a great place and then they meet that person who they saw smiling on the wall with the fucking donut and then they're like give it two weeks and you'll be fucking miserable so, so it, it's a complete contradiction it's bullshit and it makes me sick that this bureaucracy exists rather than just producing the actual circumstances to make people happy and so that you don't have to like give people doggy treats from time to time to stop them from like being totally miserable it's totally cringe it's belittling it's completely patronizing i told them myself all this shit. you know it's it's just plain sad but you know that's why I said I went a little bit off topic because it's probably not totally what bureaucracy is, but it's definitely it's definitely something that's not on a store level and it's passed down like like a memo from 
headquarters to say, don't forget to send us those pictures for social media with all the staff smiling so that when the CEO comes down we can say, oh look boss, look at what we've done, look at all these staff members fucking smiling, you know, it's a joke. I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, first of all, things like pizza parties provide the function within a company of, like, basically a bribe, right, so that you don't ask for, like, increased wages or anything actually meaningful. Instead, they'll buy you, like, a five-quid pizza every week or whatever it is, right? Um... Oh, you can't be upset. We, don't you remember that pizza last month? For sure. Don't say we don't do nothing for you. And in the same way, everything has to be a production, so of course they have to take those pictures and post them on social media, because they have to get the most out of that pizza money they spent, right? It can't just be a thing that people eat and enjoy, it has to be a PR campaign. It wasn't even that, but when they did actually bring us pizza up, the people from the cafe who made the pizza, because they've got different contracts, they couldn't even have any of the pizza who, that they made, it was only for the yeah. special colleagues, like in the store, not from the store's cafe. Oh mate, it's a fucking joke. Yeah, I'm sure. I fucking hate that place. Initially, it might appear to be a mystery that bureaucratic measures should have intensified under neoliberal governments that have presented themselves as, of course, anti-bureaucratic and anti-Stalinist. Yet new kinds of bureaucracy, aims and objectives, outcomes, mission statements have, of course, proliferated. Even as neoliberal rhetoric about the end of top-down centralized control has gained preeminence. It might seem that bureaucracy is a kind of return of the repressed, ironically re-emerging, the heart of a system which has professed to destroy it. But the resurgence of bureaucracy in neoliberalism is more than an atavism or an anomaly. Fisher was of course a professor, so all his experiences here are going to be university or, or academic based, so he continues by saying, for the degree program as a whole, academics must prepare a program specification, as well as producing annual report, program reports, which record student performance, according to progression rates, withdrawal rates, location, and spread of marks. All students' marks have to be graded against a matrix. This auto-surveillance is complemented by assessments carried out by external authorities. The marking of student assignments is monitored by external examiners who are supposed to maintain consistency of standards across the university sector. Lecturers have to be observed by their peers, while departments are subject to periodic three or four day inspections by the Quality Assurance Agency for Higher Education QAA. If they are research active, lecturers must submit their best four publications every four or five years to be graded by panel as part of the research assessment exercise, replaced in 2008 by the equally controversial Research Excellence Framework. Yeah, so this is what mm. I was talking about before, about, you know, bureaucracy being a self-licking ice cream cone, right? It exists to reproduce itself, right? There is no bureaucratic agency that's going to come to the conclusion that we need less bureaucracy, right? It's a self-licking ice cream cone. It's an Ouroboros. It's going to always seek to grow and to decide that we need more of that, you know? It's kind of like every problem you give the army, they decide, oh, this looks like a problem the army can solve. Yeah, of course, because you're the army, right? They're never going to come to a conclusion that actually this needs to be solved with peace, right? That's not what they do. Yeah, well said. 
And what he also talks about in that paragraph is Fish is right that there are always hidden expectations behind official standards. And like if you're a new worker to a workplace and you've been eating like cocoa noodles and porridge for like the last few months barely surviving, you get a new job, it's likely a temporary contract. In your first week or two for the first couple of months you're asked if you can cover the shift or like do some overtime. You know, you're not you're not getting paid for overtime obviously. Are you really gonna risk being replaced while you're on your like one to three months trial period or you just gonna be the fucking the Joey who's working like 40, 50, 60 hours on like a temporary contract. You know, obviously this is why workers get exploited. You've got to do the extra work if you're a new starter. You go the extra mile despite performing satisfactory or even performing at a higher standard. You're still asked to do the overtime or they can just hire another person to do the extra work. But that's more work for the managers <laughs> who are on like a salary for 40 hours while they're forced to work 70 hours for like the exact same reason. So they're not going to hire anybody. It's just more work for them. They're already working too much themselves. It's just bad vibes all around as a slave worker and you know millions of people all around the world. Workers burn out and die so I just don't know how most people do it to be honest. So Fish is definitely right that there's always hidden expectation behind official standards. Definitely. This is in part a consequence of the inherent resistance of certain processes and services to marketization. The supposed marketization of education, of course, rests on a confused and underdeveloped analogy. Are students the consumers of the service or its product? The idealized market was supposed to deliver friction-free exchanges in which the desires of consumers would be met directly without the need for intervention or mediation by regulatory agencies. Yet the drive to assess the performance of workers and to measure forms of labor which by their nature are resistant to quantification has inevitably required additional layers of management and bureaucracy. Again, he's saying the same thing there, like bureaucracy breeds bureaucracy and in part it might have been justified just due to the, you know, unquantification ability of the performance of workers essentially. It is extremely similar, but this just brought out a different example from my workplace. The drive to assess the performance of workers yeah, yeah. and to measure forms of labour, which by their nature are resistant to quantification. Mm -hmm. Of course, who wants to sit around and answer all the questionnaires to give quantified information all about your life? You know, nobody. So this has inevitably required additional layers of management and bureaucracy. What we have is not a direct comparison of workers' performance or output, but a comparison between the audited representation of that performance and output. Just to go back with all the photos on the wall of staff forced to smile with the donuts so people in headquarters can all sniff each other's farts and how great of a workplace they've made because of the data accumulated and the data in this case being the photos. When and another way when it talks about workers being resistant to quantification and additional layers of management and bureaucracy required in order to get that quantification, well. I don't know, like, I think a lot of people around the UK would have experienced a form called Your Voice. When I was in KFC, I was like, I'd done my own project called Your Voice, Your Choice, and it got implemented, in, like, all around the Northwest. Like, my early manager was absolutely made up with me. That's how, like, I got promoted to Chef Runner. 
so what your voice is is a survey that many companies all in retail probably beyond in the uk answer so maybe like once a year staff will be forced to go down sit on a computer you've got <laughs> how well do you think management recognizes your work and then you've got strongly disagree disagree neutral agree you know sure strongly agree yeah yeah most definitely and they try and do this every single year and this is an additional level of management and bureaucracy it's not something that ever gets acted on and everybody's groaned about doing these forms so that's definitely the resistance to being quantified which he re refers to the additional layers of management and bureaucracy it's not necessary they don't really actually do anything from it but it just creates this culture where it's like oh we care about you we care about your opinions and your feelings but it's also doing less about it would you say in this respect bureaucracy exists in some manner as the capitalist wealth increases and the capitalist the bourgeoisie who owns these businesses they can afford to do less whilst also making it more difficult for them themselves to ever have anything to do with the company because there's so much bureaucracy that people have to get through the owners the shareholders the ceos they can do whatever they want with their life when they've got so much bureaucracy do you, do you think that that's what it is it's kind of to distance themselves from it the ceos don't actually have to get hands on because the more they have to kind of step in they could just rather replace their actual work with a degree of bureaucracy do you know what i'm saying there well this is what i was saying about bureaucracy being a self-fulfilling prophecy right actually working is replaced by the appearance of working so instead of, I don't know, let's say there's some sort of problem in the office, instead of fixing the problem, what happens is you get a layer of bureaucracy that wants to send survey, to send questionnaires about the problem, send surveys about the problem, ask people about the problem, get, what does everyone think of the problem, how do people think the best way to deal with the problem is, instead of actually fixing the problem, a layer of management sort of exists around it and wants all these people to just ruminate on how to fix it without actually fixing it definitely right i think we're probably about halfway through the chapter or halfway through our notes here but i think that we're really gonna dive more into bureaucracy now and this is really where we'll get like a more in-depth explanation of what bureaucracy is because we've had some personal examples but let's go back into this now because i think we're making good progress Indeed, an anthropological study of local government in Britain argues that, quote, more effort goes into ensuring a local authority's services are representing correctly than goes into actually improving those services. This reversal of priorities is one of the hallmarks of a system which can be characterized without hyperbole as market Stalinism. What late capitalism repeats from Stalinism is just this valuing of symbols of achievement over actual achievement and then he goes into this huge allegory about a canal or something that was built under stalin but failed to get built adequately because of this dynamic that's inherent within bureaucracy or something it's just so obvious to me that it's not even funny like i remember when hr came into our store this was a new person she gathered all of us night staff in the staff room she was like hi i'm your new hr person 
started out on tills and one of you was on the tills for six months while i was studying in, in uni and now she's like five levels above like an actual store manager so she just sits around in headquarters all day fucking drinking coffee chatting shit with everybody else whilst probably just producing more bureaucracy for everybody else in the store and obviously i was just thinking like peter none of us have even been to college never mind university talking about you being one of us fuck off she was probably literally hired for a pretty face like uh, that might be slightly sexist but she is quite fit <laughs> i think that she probably was because i think a lot of people above store are just just bureaucrats like her job shouldn't exist and i'll tell you why like she went on to say now this store hasn't had like an hr person for like two years now your last one was so and so name so i've just come in to introduce myself and ask what i can do to make things better for you so we'll start with introductions it went round and then like come to me and said hi my name's shibby i'm a revolutionary i suggest that the workers are given the means of production because we know what's best and we know better than everybody above store nobody above store can just come and do our jobs like i actually said this like no bullshit ryan like i walk and talk the exact same shit like every single person knows i'm a revolutionary communist everybody so I told her that I'm a revolutionary and we should own the means of production and that I told her the people above store they're not needed and like I was thinking can we haven't had an HR person for two years clearly we don't need you <laughs> so all your wages could go to us the people who actually do the work whilst you're sitting around writing shit on a fucking whiteboard as if you're gonna take a whiteboard to fucking headquarters with you she come out got some ideas on this whiteboard i stayed behind because one it was a great opportunity to skive i literally writ out like two pieces of, of a4 paper on the back and the front suggestions of what was stupid what was shit what's dangerous what needs to be improved what needs to be abolished how managers need to fucking change like i writ out so much for it and we haven't had an hr person for two years we don't need one when she does come we're just giving them data and information for them to be passed on and this self-fulfilling ice cream and then she's gonna go back to headquarters and she's like yeah i've done my job and her job being the workers quantifying everything ourselves and she's the personification of bureaucracy every time i see her i'm just gonna i'm just gonna see walk and talk and bureaucracy pointless shit her job shouldn't exist and most people above the working class shouldn't exist it's that simple they don't exist for anything else other than to look good and yeah you know that's the main point in this would you say that bureaucracy is there not to be of any like it doesn't produce anything other than the image or like it's like more like pr do you reckon i mean yeah not likely i mean obviously there's tons of jobs within companies that can be got rid of honestly and should be but obviously they won't yeah. be because that's just how they are suggestion everybody go and listen to bullshit jobs by seriously wrong it's really funny but they also give so many examples of bullshit jobs and all the seriously wrong podcast episodes are really dense in statistics as well as being extremely funny just to finish up on that 
people do need to be telling their bosses that they're bourgeoisie, we're workers, we're being exploited, they're our class enemies, we're proletarians, we need to be standing together. That's what I do all the time, everybody else should, I'm not bullshitting about this. Honest to God, work is not important, school's not important, we need to absolutely smash capitalism before it destroys the entire planet. Sure. He says, in a strange compulsion to repeat, the ostensibly anti-Stalinist neoliberal new Labour government has shown the same tendency to implement initiatives which real-world effects matter only insofar as they register at the level of PR appearance. The notorious targets which the new Labour government was so enthusiastic in imposing are a case in point. Yeah, so I guess he's just talking about, you know, this is the new Labour government, if anyone's not from the UK, the new Labour government here was spearheaded by Blair. You're basically looking at the UK third way, right? The sort of Clintonite Democratic Party direction, right? This idea of, yes, I'm a Democrat, but I do what the Republicans say, right? The third way in the UK was essentially the same. Like, Blair was like, yes, I'm Labour, but I'm just going to do what the Conservatives want, essentially. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I didn't know what that meant, New Labour. My notes pretty much dry up here because I was thinking New Labour. I was like, what the fuck's that? I mean, I don't want to get into like a deep dive into like the history of the UK Labour Party, yeah. but if you were to compare Blair's government with someone in the Labour Party like Tony Benn, there's a distinction there between the two. Yeah, like I said, New Labour is essentially, you know, the Democratic Party, if you understand, in the US, right? He's like, the Clintonian Democratic Party, like this third way triangulization, I appeal to Republicans as well, right? The idea that he's the middle ground. He's basically just, yeah, neoliberalism, basically. That's pretty good if you want to, like, encourage wars, isn't it? Oh, yeah, they love us, for sure. Okay, so this is him coming off the back of talking about the, the targets that that government implemented. Yet if students are less skilled and knowledgeable than their predecessors, this is not due to a decline in the quality of examinations per se, but to the fact that all of the teaching is geared towards just passing the exams. Narrowly focused exam drill replaces a wider engagement with subjects. Similarly, hospitals perform many routine procedures instead of a few serious, urgent operations, because this allows them to hit the targets that they are assessed on. Operating rates, success rates, and reduction in waiting time more effectively. Yeah, again, so this is just talking about how bureaucracy seeks to not only replicate itself, but also to show improvement through bureaucratic targets without actually solving the issue, right? So what happens is you get, like he says, hospitals performing many routine procedures just to hit the success rates, instead of doing those procedures that are actually needed, so that they can tick the piece of paper and send it upstairs and get a pat on the back for a job well done, right? But you've not actually solved the problem. All you've done is you've achieved the target on the piece of paper. I was going to comment on how grotesque it is to impose bureaucracy even on hospitals and healthcare, but, you know, oh, this is what you do. Police. The police are the worst one. I don't know if you know about this, that the police have targets. In the States, the police have to give out, like, I don't know what the number oh, is, like, yeah. 500 traffic tickets a week, and then you have to, like, go and get them. But it's ridiculous, because what happens if no one's speeding? Then you make it up, right? That's what happens. They just, yeah. they just, you know, they, they're sitting there, whatever, stereotypically eating donuts. A car goes past, it's three miles an hour under the limit, eh, give them a ticket. Right? You just start giving people tickets for the sake of giving them tickets because it becomes a revenue source. It becomes about making money. 
it doesn't become about enforcing the law and making sure that protecting the peace and all that nonsense, right? It becomes, oh, this makes money. And we have a target. We have a bureaucratic target of 500 this week. Well, I've only got 470. Let's go. That car, ticket, that car, ticket, right? That's how that works. Let's go back into the hypocrisy of bourgeois democracy because this is why they hated Darwinism, isn't it? Because they said, oh, you know, under communism, everything's heavily bureaucratic. You don't have the freedom, you don't have this free enterprise. You know, the government's breathing down your neck. And yet, you're seeing bureaucracy in every aspect of anything <laughs> like whether it's healthcare whether it is the police and especially business you're seeing bureaucracy in its most elaborate forms so people need to go away with that as well thinking and understanding that some of the main reasons why people are turning back on communism it's because communism was sold to the people as being extremely bureaucratic and people want you know this free market and government not breathing down your neck but there's never been surveillance there's never been domination there's never been a lack of freedom you're gonna get under capitalism and bourgeois democracy you know it's that clear yeah for sure it would be a mistake to regard this market stalinism as some deviation from the quote true spirit of capitalism on the contrary, it would be better to say that an essential dimension of Stalinism was inhibited by its association with a social project like socialism, and can only emerge in a late capitalist culture in which images acquire an autonomous force. Okay, yeah, so this can be, you know, initially quite difficult to understand. What he's saying here is he's saying that there's something that was within Stalinism, this force of bureaucracy, that was actually held back by the social project within socialism, right? So the idea that that movement was to better the society for all people. And there was definitely a bureaucratic element because of course there was, right? All government has to have bureaucracy definitionally. But he's saying here that the bureaucracy wanted to outgrow the social project side of it, right? Like it could do way more than what it was being enabled to do uh, by being tied to a social project. But that side is able to run free in a late capitalist culture because images acquire an autonomous force, right? So you get this idea of the culture industry, which is uh, another great piece of theory I should read. Is bureaucracy inherently bad? Mm, no. I mean, it really depends. So probably not because you need some kind of coordination. So even within different sections of government, even within a proletarian government, you would have to have bureaucracy to a degree, because this section would have to talk to this section. And I can't remember where the quote is in here, but he's, he, at some point he essentially defines what bureaucracy is in a really short, succinct way. And I can't remember where that is, unfortunately. He calls it like the language of powerness or something. And that's basically all it is, it's just the language between two centres of power, right, how they interact with each other. And you would have that under any government, every government has it. A worker state would have it. The issue is when it doesn't become something that's looked at as a means to an end, it becomes something that's looked at as an end in itself, right? So like, the idea that we have more bureaucracy, so that's good. Because then bureaucracy, it, it will self-replicate and it won't actually solve the problems. The idea is to have bureaucracy do just what it needs to do and nothing more. 
so that you're actually solving problems, not writing and giving out questionnaires about how to solve the problem without solving the problem. So rather than being an autonomous force, it becomes a manual force in which the people can use it appropriately rather than to make themselves look better. <laughs> or, you know, they could take these Your Voice surveys and actually act on them. They can be used the same as anything under capitalism. It's going to be taken <laughs> to benefit the bourgeoisie rather than actually being a potential for a, a revolutionary change. Indeed. He goes on to say, the way value is generated on the stock exchange depends, of course, less on what a company really does and more on perceptions of and beliefs about its future performance. In capitalism, that is to say, all that is solid melts into PR, and late capitalism is defined at least as much by this ubiquitous tendency towards PR production as it is by the imposition of market mechanisms. Yeah, so this is the thing about there being no actual reality, everything is perception. So whether the stock market goes up or down doesn't actually depend on the real material conditions of companies and what they're doing. Instead, it depends on perceptions of what companies are doing or beliefs about what companies are doing. Because huge companies, you know, like Uber and all those are like massively in debt. Netflix is like hundreds of millions in debt. But they're still, you know, gigantic powerhouses on the stock exchange because these people aren't trading on that. They're trading on expectations of, they're trading on what they believe about the future of that company. They're not trading on the actual financial health of the company today. Too big to fail, some would say. And that just obviously shows you the actual perversiveness of capitalism which calls itself the free market that you can't have companies that are too big to fail like what yeah i mean there's also no such thing as a free market it doesn't exist it never will exist um, nope. and it definitionally cannot exist um, nope i mean people really need to stop using the word capitalism altogether and just start calling things monopoly well, I mean, Monopoly is an, an inevitability of capitalism. I mean, what people don't realize is that the board game Monopoly was created to show why capitalism doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Because in the end, what happens? One person ends up with all the money, and that's the Monopoly, right? Yeah, uh, just stock market. I'm going out on the limb here, but is the stock market, the way it comes off to me is it takes a system and then it kind of splits it up and slices it up into as, as many different things as possible. Never mind, forget that thought. That's it. No, I mean, if you think of the stock market like the sun, the whole point is that everything revolves around it. But the stock market isn't built on anything real. Like we've said, it's just built on people's feelings. I mean, the stock market is essentially a line that tells you how rich people are feeling. When the rich people are not happy with the economy, the line goes down. When the rich people are happy, the line goes up. It really is that simple. And yeah, sure, there's bureaucracy around it. I mean, getting involved in stock trading or anything about it would be bureaucratic. I mean, I'm sure there's tons of laws and regulations around when you can trade and who can trade and how many times a day you can trade. I'm sure there's bureaucracy that surrounds anything ultimately where there's money to be made. Hmm. Yes. Thanks. All good. So, he goes on to say that here Zizek's elaboration of Lacan's concept of the Big Other is crucial. 
The Big Other is a collective fiction, the symbolic structure presupposed by any social field. The Big Other can never be encountered in itself. Instead, we only ever confront its standards. These representatives are by no means always leaders. In the example of the White Sea Canal that he spoke about uh, earlier, it wasn't Stalin himself who was representative of the Big Other so much as the Soviet and foreign writers who had to be persuaded of the glories of the project. One important dimension of the Big Other is that it does not know everything. It is this cons... <laughs> is that word again? Constitu constitutive. Constitutive. Okay, constitutive. Yeah. That's the really annoying thing, like, I, I, I see the word, I know the word, and then when I say the word, it's not that word I'm saying at all. Oh, it's like, should definitely add a thesaurus next to him when he was writing this. I mean, maybe. I mean, he was just incredibly educated and learned, right? Like, he worked at an acad a university his whole life, so I'm sure he just had a great vocabulary, honestly. It is oh. this constitutive. Oh, I've already forgotten. Constitutive. Constitutive. <laughs> constitutive. It is this constitutive ignorance of the Big Other that allows public relations to function. Indeed, the Big Other could be defined as the consumer of PR and propaganda, the virtual figure which is required to believe when no individual can. So, we're talking about two different people talking about a new topic here. So Zizek is talking about Lacan's concept of the Big Other. So the Big Other is, you can even think of it as what Hitler referred to as like the big lie, right? It's a collective fiction, it's this thing that everyone believes in that you could never find the actual owner of. All you ever meet is its stand-ins. You know what it's like? Dread Pirate Roberts. You know what Dread Pirate Roberts is? It's like the name... Does it come from Zorro? It might come from Zorro. So basically, Dread Pirate Roberts was a name. It's from Princess Bride. So Dread Pirate Roberts was basically a name, and everyone had that name, but you only ever... Obviously, you never met the real one. You only ever met its stand-ins, right? Mm. But the big other is like that... The collective fiction, the giant lie that like all of society believes in, you know what I mean? Mm, which yeah. is mediated now yeah. by PR. Yeah. Fucking what world are we living in? To use one of Zizek's examples, who was it, for instance, who didn't know that really existing socialism was shabby and corrupt? Not any of the people who were all too aware of its shortcomings, nor any of the government administrators who couldn't but know. Instead, it was the big other who was the one deemed not to know, and who wasn't allowed to know. The quoted... <laughs> the quotidian reality of really existing socialism. Yet the distinction between what the big other knows, i.e. what is officially accepted, and what is widely known and experienced by actual individuals is far from being merely emptily formal. It is the discrepancy between the two that allows ordinary social reality to function. When the illusion that the big other did not know can no longer be maintained, the incorporeal fabric holding the social system together disintegrates. This is why Khrushchev's speech in 65, in which he admitted the failings of the Soviet state, was so momentous. So yeah, basically, it's, it's just the zeitgeist, right? The big other is essentially just the zeitgeist. It's just what dominant wisdom says about it. So, it's not like what Gramsci would call common sense? Well, I mean, if you want to talk about Gramsci, right, Gramsci said that common sense is ideological, right? There actually isn't such a thing as, like, common sense in and of itself. 
When people talk about common sense, what they're actually doing is naturalizing a system of ideology, right? And you can talk about like business ontology talking about like, oh well, the free of the market, the free of the people, that's just common sense. Well, actually no. The idea of the free of the market, the free of the people is a deeply ideological statement. But what they've done is it it's an ideology they agree with. So to them, it's just common sense. So they've naturalized an ideological statement. So how does that differ from the big other, i.e. what is officially accepted and what is widely known and experienced by actual individuals? It doesn't really. I mean, the big other, the mouthpieces of the big other would be what Gramsci called, you know, um, academics. They'd be those people who would say and do those things, um, mediated by, you know, PR and propaganda and those kind of things. Okay, and then that paragraph basically sums up what happens when you smash up this common sense or you give them this big other thing and it absolutely tears the fabric holding the social system together it disintegrates and that happened in 1965 with Khrushchev's speech uh yeah apparently so i mean i'm not gonna get into like the ussr and khrushchev at 65 and gorbachev or any of that but yeah that is what Fisher is saying and I just want to underline that Khrushchev's speech in 1965, Mark Fisher says, in which he, in quotations, admitted, in quotations, the failings of the Soviet state. So obviously Mark Fisher's saying he admitted the failings of the Soviet state, but rarely he was lying. I just want to say that because obviously that that shows Fisher's yeah, well, support I mean, he for was, communism. He was a capitalist roader, right? So of course... You know, the person who wants to put the country on the road to capitalism would, of course, admit the failure of a system he didn't agree with. Like, but he continues by saying, So much for really existing socialism, but what of really existing capitalism? One way to understand the realism in capitalist realism is in terms of the claim to have given up belief in the big other. Postmodernism can be construed in the name for the complex that can be construed as the name for the complex of crises that the decline in the belief of the big other has triggered. As Lyotard's famous formulation of the postmodern condition, incredulity towards meta-narratives suggests. Jameson, of course, would argue that an incredulity towards meta-narratives is one expression of the cultural logic of late capitalism, the consequence of the switch into the post-Fordist mode of capital accumulation. So again, in the same way we have Fordism and post-Fordism, he's tying this to essentially modernism and postmodernism. So, um, you know, postmodernism is this idea, like Lyotard, Lyotard was the first person to coin the term postmodernism, and he defined it as being an incredulity towards meta-narratives, right? So it's basically doubting large ideas about culture or society or any such thing. And it had positive impacts, right? I mean, pride, for instance, you know, the acceptance of gay people came from an incredulity towards the meta-narrative that that's bad. Right, so it has positives, but it also plays a part in, for instance, like the stock market, right? That, that is, the stock market is a quintessentially postmodern institution. It doesn't care about reality on the ground. It does its own thing independent of the reality on the ground. Previously, Fisher mentioned really existing socialism. Ask him what is really existing capitalism. One way to understand the realism of capitalist realism claim is to have given up on the big other. So do you think Fisher draws, I mean, I'm pretty sure he does refer to capitalist realism being his understanding or one way he would put capitalist realism 
is a, a direct contrast with really existing socialism. Is that right? I mean, he's just essentially talking about, you know, the re- the realism in capitalist realism is to have given up belief in the big other, right? Yeah, so um... it's basically the idea that... So the big other is a meta-narrative. And postmodernism is no longer believing in meta-narratives. And the big other is is the meta-narrative that we no longer believe in. So you can see that here with the rise of, like, conspiracy theories, right? Because what the establishment says on something is no longer sufficient, right? When the government come out and they tell you that Jeffrey Epstein killed himself, right? No one, no one believes that anymore, right? They have an inherent incredulity towards that. No one believes that. So instead, what you get, for better or worse, is you get a ton of conspiracy theories. You get he's not really dead. You get he's alive on an island in the middle of nowhere. You get, you know, all of those. So that's why it's the big other, because these, yeah. you know, millions of people believe these other narratives. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, yeah. Okay, 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 good, good. I understand now. And and he asked what is really existing capitalism, I just want to say Noam Chomsky's mm-hmm. definition of really existing capitalism. By low key. Thank you for joining us, Noam. In Optimism Over Despair, you say, it seems to me unlikely that civilization can survive really existing capitalism. Would you be able to explain that statement for us? Really existing capitalism uh, is what we can see described in the uh, uh, press uh, day after day. We we read that uh, the major banks like uh, J.P. Morgan Chase uh, are increasing their investment in fossil fuels, including the most dangerous, like Canadian tar sands. And uh, all of this is quite understandable on the assumption that that the structure of our institutions is geared to maximizing short-term profit and power uh, without regard to uh, what might happen to uh, the world in another group. 20 or 30 years. But that's called capitalism. I mean, that, that was basically Chomsky's uh, expression of really existing capitalism. Oh, okay, cool. I'm actually going to delete the next two chapters because this chapter feeds perfectly into this next one that I didn't even see that fits so well. So I'm just going to hop from there straight into capitalist postmodernity because that really is the same idea as what we're talking about now and it'll feed straight in. Capitalist postmodernity is not quite as incredulous as it would appear to be, as the jeweler Gerald Ratner famously found to his cost. Ratner precisely tried to circumvent the symbolic and, quote, tell it how it is, describing the inexpensive jewellery in his shops sold as crap in an after-dinner speech. But the consequence of Ratner making this judgement official were immediate and serious. 500 million was wiped off the value of his company and he lost his job. Customers might previously have known that what he sold was poor quality, but the big other didn't know. And as soon as it did, then the value collapsed, right? Mm. It's the zeitgeist's way of knowing. It's like, even if you know, and even if your customer's knowing, all of society doesn't know. The second you go on news and you say it, 
now the big other knows, right? Everyone's going to talk about it. It's going to go from station to station to TV camera to TV camera, right? It's going to be a whole thing. You can no longer find someone who doesn't know it. Mm, yes, and people are probably just likely going to co-op what you say for, for their own uh, means. But what, yeah. what the hell's the, the zeitgeist, right? You keep saying it whenever you say zeitgeist. I just think of that film where you start talking mental health. And the zeitgeist is just the same as the big other. But when I say zeitgeist, I'm talking about the actual definition, which means the general intellectual or the moral or cultural climate in an era, right? Yeah. So I'm using it basically as a, a substitution for the big other. Right, the zeitgeist, the the thought leaders in a community. It's basically what most people think is true, is the zeitgeist. Fisher goes on to say, Postmodernism's cynical reduction to reality falls short. When a judge speaks, there is, in a way, more truth in his words, the words of the institution of law, than in the direct reality of the person of judge, if one limits himself to what one sees. One simply misses the point. Lacan aims at this paradox with his, oh my god, let non du errant, those who do not allow themselves to be caught in the symbolic deception, those who continue to believe their eyes are the ones who err the most. A cynic who believes only his eyes misses the efficiency of the symbolic fiction and how it structures our experience of reality. Yeah, so essentially here he's just talking about, like, the the reality of postmodernism's effect on reality, right? So a person who only believes what he sees actually entirely misses the point of the reality of the big other and how it affects everything. For Allard, phenomena such as fly-on-the-wall documentaries and political opinion polls, both of which claim to present reality in an unmediated way would always pose an insoluble dilemma. Did the presence of the cameras affect the behavior of those being filmed? Would the publication of poll results affect the future behavior of voters? Such questions were undecidable, and therefore reality would always be elusive. At the very moment when it seemed that it was being grasped in the raw, reality transformed into what Borodat, in a much understood neologism called hyperreality. Yeah, so essentially he's talking about, you know, what is real, what is reality. If you film an event that inherently changes the behavior of those people being filmed, it's kind of like the measurement effect in science, right? I don't know if you know about this, but it's like you can either measure the speed or a direction of a particle, but never both at the same time. So measuring one um, completely eludes you to the other. You can never measure both at the same time. Yeah, that's deep. But it's definitely true that there's two levels of reality. The unscripted behaviour of the so-called live performance on screen and the unpredictable response of the audience at home. You know, that the people watching at home definitely influences the behaviour of those being filmed. I mean, anybody gets a camera stuck in the face. It's pretty hard to just not only ignore that, but also not be conscious of it. Of course, you're going to be conscious of the fact that anybody could pull up that picture, anybody could pull up that video, share it anywhere they wanted at any time. So, of course, as a person, as a social creature, you're going to react to different people observing you. It's just a kind of fact of life, isn't it? Sure. 
the other question in there, which is, you know, would the publication of poll results uh, affect the future behavior of voters? The answer is definitely yes. So there's this really weird thing called the winner effect. I just called it the winner effect, but it is the winner effect. And it's this weird thing that people have where they want, they always want to vote for the winner or they always want to back the winner in any team, right? And it's the same phenomenon that you can even find in like football teams. The idea that the friend you have that was never into football, whenever mm, Arsenal wins the championship, suddenly he's an Arsenal fan, right? The idea that people want to back the winner. They want to be a member of the winning tribe. So if you post poll results saying, you know, candidate X has got 70% of the vote, everyone's going to vote for that person because suddenly it's oh if he's going to win anyway then i want to vote for him because then i will win i voted for him and he won so i won i made him win we won right it's this thing that people always want to be with the winner yeah that, that that's so true because you see it whether brazil wins the the world cup everybody's wearing brazil shirts and you know liverpool won the premier league and now everybody all around the world supports liverpool rather than Man United. Man United are like probably the most popular club in the world and obviously Liverpool's up there now. So yeah, that's definitely true that people want to support the winner and that's going to be a factor on reality TV show as well where it's always focused around money, profit, fame, your future. It's impossible to have reality TV in any, in a, in any real sense. Well, I mean, it's also just that reality TV isn't real, right? I mean, we get to that very shortly. Mm, but, but I think Fisher mentions it because yeah, people next. genuinely believe in this shit. Like, they genuinely believe that this is how people behave. And then what it does is the people on the screen who are being filmed, they start to act out, they start to act differently. But the observers of sure. the those on the screen behave and, and act differently themselves because of this performance that they've watched so it's a con it's a constant mess of bullshit for sure i mean the text continues by saying uncannily echoing borazar's fixations the most successful reality tv programs end up fusing fly on the wall documentary elements with interactive polling in reality there are two levels of reality in these shows the unscripted behavior of the real-life participants on screen and the unpredictable responses of the audience at home, which in turn affect the behavior of the on-screen participants. Yet reality TV is continually haunted by questions about fiction and illusion. Are the participants acting, suppressing certain aspects of their personality in order to appear more appealing to us, the audience? And have the audience votes been accurately registered, or is it some kind of a fix by the TV show? The slogan that the Big Brother TV show uses, You Decide, captures perfectly the mode of control by feedback that, according to Baudrillard, has replaced old centralized forms of power. We ourselves occupy the empty seat of power, phoning and clicking in our responses. TV's Big Brother had superseded Orwell's Big Brother. We, the audience, are not subjected to a power that comes from outside, Rather, we are integrated into a control circuit that has our desires and preferences as its only mandate. But those desires and preferences are returned to us no longer as ours, but as the desires of the big other. Clearly, these circuits are not confined to television. Cybernetic feedback systems, focus groups, demographic surveys are now integral to the delivery of all services, including education and government. Another scorching analysis 
For sure. I mean, this is basically just an area of sociology that pretty much all sociologists are focused on. You can basically find everyone in the Frankfurt School talking about this. Obviously, Mark Fisher, because he's doing it right here, talking about Borodard doing it, so he does it also. It's a very um, well-trodden area of sociology, for sure. But not only by Borodard. Kafka was the greatest writer on bureaucracy because he saw that this structure of disavowal was inherent to bureaucracy. The quest to reach the ultimate authority will finally resolve K's official status can never end, because the big other cannot be encountered in itself. There are other officials, more or less hostile, engaged in acts of interpretation about what the big other's intentions are. And these acts of interpretation, these deferrals of responsibility, are all that the big other is. If Kafka is valuable as a commentator on totalitarianism, it is by revealing that there was a dimension of totalitarianism which cannot be understood on the model of despotic command. Nice. I'm sure that you don't understand a bit about K there, yeah? Like K's official status can never uh -huh. end. What's that, Kafka? So, yes, but this comes from the book The Trial. Remember I told you about the great book The Trial? He, the book starts with him waking up and being arrested, but he has no ah, idea why. Yeah, yeah. So he the goes to bureaucracy and yeah, yeah. the main um, the main character is called K. It's called Joseph K. Um, mm. Yeah, the basically the book is the quest to reach the ultimate authority that will finally resolve K's official status, but it never ends, right? So that's what that is. Kafka. Yeah, he refers to that Colin Kafka, the writer of Valuer. A valuable commentator on totalitarianism, which I guess with more bureaucracy, would that increase the amount of totalitarianism which you're, you're under? It was, I mean, what he's talking about here is that if you think of totalitarianism only as despotic command, right, the idea that you have sort of one dictatorial leader and whatever he says goes, if that's your entire understanding of totalitarianism, then you do not understand totalitarianism, right? So totalitarianism is what he's saying, is that there is an element of it that is that bureaucracy, right? That being passed to pillar to post, never knowing it, what other people are doing, am I free, am I not free, what, what's he said to him, and what, do, what are all the institutions of power doing, right? That is part of totalitarianism, it's the idea that all these institutions are acting on what the big other is thinking, but none of them know, so they're just going around doing what they think is best, but they're always going to get it wrong because they don't know what the big other thinks. Yeah, boss. Nice one for that yet ago. All good. The proliferation of auditing culture in post-Fordism indicates that the demise of the Big Other has been exaggerated. Auditing can perhaps best be conceived of as fusion of PR and bureaucracy, because the bureaucratic data is usually intended to fulfill a promotional role. In the case of education, for example, exam results or research ratings augment or diminish the prestige of particular institutions. The frustration of the teacher is that it seems as if their work is increasingly aimed at impressing the big other, which is collating and consuming this data. Data has been put in inverted commas here because much of the so-called information has little meaning or application outside the parameters of the audit. As Eva Berglund puts it, 
The information that audit creates does have consequences, even though it is so shorn of local detail, so abstract as to be meaningless or misleading. Except that is by the aesthetic criteria of the audit itself. But again, this is just again talking about how bureaucracy only meets itself. It only seeks to further itself, and it only satisfies itself. Yeah, going back to I think it's been I think it was early on in the book where he says new new bureaucracy takes the form not of a specific delimited function performed by particular workers but invades all areas of work with the result that as Kafka prophesied workers become their own auditors forced to assess their own performance so you know workers becoming their own auditors assessing their own performance and you know even that of other managers i mean that doesn't do nothing for the workers does it that's just serving bureaucracy and that's it there's nothing else coming from it other than bureaucracy being served yeah i mean that's why he talks about it being fused with pr right because you fill out all those surveys about how great the courses are and then some PR dude gets his hands on those and turns them into a PR campaign about look, all our students think that our courses are great, come here. And then that gets them bumped up in the, um, you know, national rankings of universities and it earns them more money. Yeah, and he finishes that paragraph with it being said as to be misleading or meaningless, except that is by the aesthetic criteria of audit itself. Yeah. Definitely meaningless. Yeah, because if you, you know, if you take a class and they want you to do a questionnaire on how great that class is, and you tick, yeah, it's fine, that actually doesn't mean anything to anyone except the person who issued the questionnaire. Because what does it's fine mean? That could mean anything. It could mean it's pretty good, it's not that great, it's, it's fine isn't a standardized unit of measure, it's just an opinion of something, right? So it doesn't actually mean anything outside of the confines of the person who issued the questionnaire who has a, an idea of like anything below this is not acceptable. So it only means something to that. It either passes or fails that standard that he has in his head. Until the next pointless form. Yeah, until about. they issue another one and then yeah. <laughs> yeah. He continues, New bureaucracy takes the form not of a specific delimited function performed by particular workers, but invades all areas of work, with the result that, as Kafka prophesied, workers become their own auditors. They're forced to assess their own performance. Take, for example, the new system that Ofsted uses to inspect further education colleges. Under the old system, a college would have a heavy inspection every four years or so one involving many lesson observations and a large number of inspectors present in the college. Under the new improved system, however, if a college can demonstrate that its internal assessment systems are effective, it only has to undergo a light inspection. But the downside of this light perspection is obvious. Surveillance and monitoring are outsourced from Ofsted into the college itself, and ultimately into the lecturers themselves and they become a permanent feature of the college structure and of the psychology of the individual lecturers. The difference between the old heavy and new light inspection system corresponds precisely to Kafka's distinction between ostensible acquittal and indefinite postponement outlined above. With ostensible acquittal, you petition the lower court judges until they grant you a non-binding reprieve. 
you are then free from the court until the time when your case is reopened. Indefinite postponement, meanwhile, keeps your case at the lowest level of the court, but at the cost of an anxiety that never ends. The changes in Ofsted inspections are mirrored by in the change of the research assessment exercise to the research excellence framework in higher education. Periodic assessment will be superseded by a permanent and ubiquitous measurement which cannot help but generate the same perpetual anxiety. Yeah, so that bit in the middle there is a Kafka, the trial reference. You know, like the difference between, you know, um, ostensible acquittal and indefinite postponement. That's basically a book thing. I'm, I don't want to spoil it by just, like, telling everyone the book. Go read the book. It's too, it's too good to not read. It's honestly great. You'll honestly love it. But other than that, he's saying that basically the, the control systems, the surveillance systems of Ofsted as an institution are outsourced into the colleges and into the individual lectures. So they monitor themselves now, so that they don't have to undergo the heavy inspections, they can do the light inspections instead. Yeah, you know, he's definitely not just stating the fact here. I think that just like my work experience, where I've came across bureaucracy and it's patronising, waste of fucking time all, and, and all that, this is something he's experienced himself as a lecturer. I think that he's definitely experienced that frustration, that alienation and that patronisation that comes from Ofsted <laughs> and their bureaucracy within, you know, schools and universities. He goes into it more in the book and obviously we're not going to just recite everything from the book, but I mean, it does seem like a headache. It's great. The book's honestly great. It's yeah. also funny, but it's like unexpectedly funny. It's great. But there's this one point where he finally makes it in front of a court Instead of all of the judges reading law books, they're all just sat there reading porn mags. It's good. Like, honestly, the whole, the whole book's great. But yeah, it, it basically just talks about, you know, like the insanity of the bureaucratic system. And, you know, they're just cogs in a machine and they don't care. And you're just being passed from pillar to post and they have no interest in this thing at all. The effect of not knowing whether you will be observed or not observed produces an introjection of the surveillance apparatus. You constantly act as if you are always about to be observed, yet in the case of school and university inspections, what you will be graded on is not primarily your abilities as a teacher so much as your diligence as a bureaucrat. There are other bizarre effects. Since Ofsted is now observing the college's self-assessment system, there is an implicit incentive for the college to grade itself and its teaching lower than it actually deserves. The result is a kind of postmodern capitalist version of Maoist confessionalism, in which workers are required to engage in constant symbolic self-denigration. At one point when our line manager was extolling the virtues of the new light inspection system, he told us that the problem with our departmental logbooks was that they were not sufficiently self-critical. But don't worry, he urged, as self-criticisms we make are purely symbolic and will never be acted upon, as if performing self-flagellation as part of a purely formal exercise in cynical bureaucratic compliance were any less demoralizing. In the post this classroom, the reflexive impotence of the students is mirrored by reflexive impotence of the teachers. If people take away any example to reiterate to others of what bureaucracy is, that's, that's one easy and good example right there. I mean, it was what I was saying earlier, right, about 
a layer of management that's set up to talk about and collect data on problems, but never wanting to solve the problems. So instead you have to write down everything that's bad, but they're never going to they're never actually going to correct any of the things that are bad. It's just because someone's job's on the line, someone got a job in creating that logbook and overlooking that little department, so... Yeah, precisely, and this to me, and my own personal theory, is to distance people from the higher-ups of management so they have less work to do. The CEOs, they can just chill on their yachts because they've created this level of bureaucracy. So that... I mean, they chill anyway, honestly. Like, they just delegate. They... they... The actual CEOs do very little, honestly. Like, but obviously, uh, uh, if their company was smaller, they they wouldn't have that leisure. They'd, oh, they'd for have sure. To be more hands-on. If yeah. they were, like, for example, a manager before actually selling that business and then just becoming a, a member of the board, and that's really where I think the start of this evolution of bureaucracy began. And that was when the lords and the capitalists and, and all that shit, you know, they went from actually having to supervise to just being a manager and then just being on the board and, and each step that that took to, to them rising through different la layers of class creates more bureaucracy to, to protect them and that. And I mean, you could even attribute that with law as well um, you know the politicians and the businessmen as, as they accrued more power and wealth and capital more laws come along so that they're completely protected from having to justify the actions in which or the things that they're doing or even have to be responsible to that that's not from the book that's not what Marcus is saying that might not be true but that that's what I think anyway no it, it is I mean that's essentially what we talk about when we talk about base and superstructure, right? We have bourgeois law, which means laws are created for the protection of private property. Nine-tenths of the law is possession, right? The law is essentially who gets to have what and when. Um, yeah, but because society is controlled by private property, most of the law is set up to benefit private property. That's why most of the laws are laws regarding you know, property and boundaries for properties and property law and capital and all that yeah a good example an easy example to just reiterate what i've just said is in the army if you want a big change you can't go to the general you've got to go through the rank structure and that's essentially what bureaucracy is when instead of going from like i mean you might have colleague and then section manager or and then manager and then store manager and then fucking area manager <laughs> you know, there's also these layers of bureaucracy in between all of those and Marx calls all these different layers of managers um, essentially like officers in the army anyway so, you know, tying that in with, with that example this bureaucracy is one million percent just to replace a physical human being representing the capitalist and then instead just creating this cheap way of managing where it's so cheap the workers do it themselves, you know, in a lot of cases for sure. Bureaucracy, fucking hell, what's it good for? He ends this chapter by saying, The invocation of the idea that there is no alternative and the recommendation to work smarter, not harder, shows how capitalist realism sets the tone for labour disputes in post-Fordism. Ending the inspection regime, one lecturer sardonically remarked, seems more impossible than ending slavery was. Such fatalism can only be challenged if a new collective political subject emerges. And yes, I'm sure it is probably more difficult to end slavery. I'm sure. 
because it's firstly it's much more decentralized. Secondly, slavery was ended by a bourgeois revolution, which means that the bourgeois had to have an interest in ending it, and the bourgeois have no interest in ending this system because it's their system, right? So, the the ended chattel slavery. Yeah, chattel slavery is when people were owned as property. The ended chattel slavery didn't end end slavery, and even if that was their ultimate goal, they would have took to to end it all around the world. Because, I mean, if they want to fight terrorism, what's worse is the actual human slaves still in chattel slavery around the world today. They would welcome chattel slavery in places like Africa or the Middle East because they want these places to be locked in like a technologically primitive area so that they can't compete with, with capitalism or the lifestyle. Well, I mean, there are open slave markets today in Libya because Obama overthrew Gaddafi, right? In Libya. So there are now open slave markets in that country. It was once like one of the safest places. It was one of the shining lights. But yeah, he overthrew the government and now there's like actual slave markets like in the street and such. So if they put an end to these slave markets, if they actually started working towards a, a system where people had increasing rights and true liberty and freedom that make sure that slavery came back and that's worth to, to prop up a kind of big other. I hope that, you know, everyone now has a decent understanding of bureaucracy, PR, the big other, just sort of general concepts like that, Fordism, post-Fordism. Yeah, I, I think so. If people don't, I'm sure that they could just hit you up on Twitter at the Zen Marxist. For sure. But yeah, th thank you for that, Ryan. Again, like I said, there was a lot that I didn't understand. There, there was, you know, whole films that he'd watched that I've never seen. There was, you know, books that he referred to which I've never read and concepts that I'd never heard before, such as the, the Big Other. And that. But, Absolutely interesting, I've learned so much Ryan and you know, it's, I've got you to look for that, always appreciate your contributions. No worries. And, and I'm sure others do as well. You can reach out to the podcast directly and follow us on Twitter at lumpen underscore radio. So that was chapters five and six of Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher. Again, please go away and read this book because we brought a lot out of it, but it's also really interesting and it's a bit of a funny book as well, whilst also being one of the most depressing books you, you'll ever read, just because of how much weight in <laughs> that comes with the truth when it comes down to this capitalist realism concept. Thank you again to our patrons. We're going to continue to do hashtag theory Thursdays because it's extremely important that people, you know, grasp this theory so that we can better ourselves in practice, so that we can agitate, agitate, help us share this ideology. And then so, you know, again, hopefully one day we end up in happy hunting grounds and we've built a community behind us where we can move through the people like a fish, as Mao put it, because we want revolution and we might have to fight for it. So we need people on our side. So these concepts have to go over because, you know, people out there believe in conspiracy theories, the big other, and this really helps tear those concepts down. So yeah, we do this to reinforce this theory on ourselves, to help us educate. I'm definitely educated off it. Hope you were really educated. So with that being said, until next time, where we go through chapters six and seven, with your co-host Shibby and Ryan. 
Vinicius. Workers and Lumpen unite. Is it the economic system v the ecosystem? How we gonna define deep when the seas have risen? How can we define woke when our sleep's commissioned? Drowned out by cold brother bots, how can the people listen? Can't detoxify as we watch the sky fade to grey. The source devoured corporate power killed the nation state. Sophisticated murder defined as innovation. Corporations whine and dying just to mine your information. Amen versus humanity. Terrorist who? His search engine knows your thought pattern better than you. In an environment resentful, uprising is essential. The Rising is torrential, think your silence will protect you Subject to propaganda that terrifies the slumbered We can jeopardise their cover if we energise the numbers Collectivise or die, protect your mind or suffer Life is paradise to some and a paradise to others of a tired retired fireman knowing he couldn't help a child survive the frying pan when we riot we disquiet the leviathan forget iron man i've got an iron lion's diaphragm my salutations to those with imagination doom anticipated and that's no exaggeration your flag doesn't exist let me back up that statement what happens to the nation if the queen has a tax haven pushing these buttons you don't need a brave heart from text turn the mediterranean to a graveyard paper wall will drive you crazy if you let it had a mother bury a newborn baby in the desert was commonsensical It's sensible to question What seems to be a lesson is intellectual repression Rebel against the system that deprived you of a voice Rebel against this hell while our survival still a choice Suicide cannibalize itself While the bank's treating fictitious capital like it's wealth Your lurid lobby system means corruption is legalized Privatized healthcare elsewhere People die, rebellion lives in all those that dream of a better way Refuse to be brainwashed with false visions of yesterday Choose to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted So many choose the opposite, their spirit contradicted Bring a child to the world where the future seems impossible Five trillion dollars a year subsidizing fossil fuels The truth was in their eyes but you shrugged and just turned your back and watched the Family beg for help while they flat turn to ash apocalypse now We saw our future in that damn building CEOs loving profit more than they love their grandchildren We saw our future in that damn building CEOs loving profit more than they love their grandchildren Not to be concerned about the future of their grandchildren You have to uh, put yourself in the position of say uh, uh, Jamie Dimon the uh, CEO of uh, the biggest bank, J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, as CEO, he has essentially two choices. Uh, one choice is to do exactly what he's doing. Uh, invest, uh, direct investments to the most profitable uh, outcome. It happens to be the most dangerous fossil fuels. Do that. Uh, the other alternative he has is to resign and be replaced by somebody else who will do the same thing. But this is an institutional problem, not an individual one. 
Frontex turn the Mediterranean to a graveyard. Frontex turn the Mediterranean to a graveyard. Frontex turn the Mediterranean to a graveyard. Frontex turn the Mediterranean to a graveyard.